Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IGA nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Jackie Zimmerman, an IBD warrior, author, patient advocate, and queen of getting shit done. She's here to share her journey with IBD and how she's channeled two chronic illnesses into a side career in patient advocacy, founded a nonprofit for women with IBD and ostomies, and runs a successful business inspiring small business owners to dream big. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jackie, and welcome to the show. I'm gonna I'm gonna hire you to write all my intros from here on out because that was just top notch. I sound awesome in that interview. <laughs> you are awesome. <laughs> I am I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. I know there is so much that we have to talk about. So let's get started. You actually have you have two chronic illnesses, including IBD. So let's get started with your chronic illness journey. And can you start from the beginning and share when and how you were diagnosed and how your two chronic illnesses intertwine in your story? Sure. So I was initially diagnosed with MS in 2006. So I was 21. I was in my final semester of undergrad, um, ready to, you know, be a grown up with my degree and do all the things. And I woke up one morning feeling numb from the waist down, kind of like the way you sleep on your arm and it's, you know, like numb in the morning and you just like get up and start moving and it like wakes itself up. I felt that in my toes the first morning and I knew I didn't sleep on my toes in a weird way. So I was like, that's weird. You know, I'm young. I've never been sick before. So I'm like, that's weird. Keep on moving. And so over the next couple of days, it was creeping up my legs. And once it got to my waist, I was like, this feels wrong and weird. So I went, started with my primary care and they gave me a steroid injection and were like, you know, monitor this, see how it goes. And it didn't improve. It didn't change. So then they told me to go to a neurologist, which at the time was very confusing for me. um, Because again, I've never been sick. So I was like, there's a problem with my legs. This guy's sending me to a neurologist. What does he know? (laughs) Right? Like I was like, this guy's so dumb. Well, joke's on me. Um, Because through that process of seeing a neurologist, I had all the diagnostic testing, which with MS is usually a process of elimination. There is no test that diagnoses MS. So you have a whole bunch of other tests and they go, it's none of those things. And that basically is where you end up with MS. And then for, nope, how many later? Three years later, um, I got diagnosed with IBD. And, you know, that's a quick jump to, and then I got diagnosed. But, um, and the reason why is because, you know, I had had symptoms for like well over 10 years at that point that I was ignoring, hiding, pretending they weren't happening. Um, Cause it started in high school and I, you know, was not willing to talk about that with anybody at any point in my whole life. And it wasn't until I got older, so I was 24 at the time, I had my own health insurance uh, because I didn't want my parents to know because, again, I was just mortified at the concept that this could something could be wrong in my butt. Like, can you imagine? So uh, I waited. I had a really good friend with MS who I talked to about this. She was the only person in the whole world I was talking to about this. And she really encouraged me to go see a GI, even though I really didn't want to, because at the time I started seeing blood in my stool and, you know, I had all the issues that everybody typically has. But for me, it was like, I'm the only person in the world who has ever experienced this ever. So she talked me into going, I had a flex sig that I was awake for. And and that happened because I didn't know what a flex sig was when they told me I was having one. So I was like, yep, sure, whatever they say. So I showed up that day ready for my test. I did not know what that test was going to be because there wasn't a clean out for it. So I was just like, here's a test. I'm going to show up. And they were like, this is the test, Um, which was, you know, horrifying again in the moment, right? This is like, I am somebody who does not talk to anybody about this. And now, you know, my ass is on the screen, you know, huge because they're coming at me with the scope and then I see everything and I feel everything. And at that time I was in a very active flare, which I didn't know. Um, So it was a really painful procedure. And uh, that's how I got my UC diagnosis. So it was sort of a, a wham, bam, uh, one after the other. And no one in my family has either. Nobody I knew in real life had either. So it was a very steep learning curve in the very beginning. 
Do you think since you already had MS, was there a part of you that thought maybe this was all attributed to that? Or did you know that something separate was going on? No, there was a period of time. So there was a period of time when I was blogging about living with MS and I even started talking about it um, of like all these like poop issues that I was having on that blog because I thought, neuro, you know, it can, there can be neurological complications that, you know, mess up the wiring on the way down there and weird stuff can happen because of MS. Um, so in the beginning, that's sort of how I justified it, where I was like, this is fine. This is totally fine. Uh, and then the blood started and I was like, okay, this is when it's I know this is not fine. Um, so yeah, I definitely want, I wanted it to be an MS problem. You know, I wanted it to be easily something where it's like, well, it's just neurological connections, no big deal. Uh, but I was very wrong. <laughs> well, like you, and one of the reasons I do the podcast is because I, I love to know that we're not alone in this journey. So like you, I also, when I was in my early 20s, did not want to tell anybody what was happening with my valve movements, that there was blood. And so I kept it in for a long time as well, because I knew, I thought, if there's something wrong with that part of my body, they're going to be inspecting that yes. part of my body. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I just was mortified at that thought. At, I was probably 22, 23, so that young. And I lived in a different state from my family, so I didn't even, I just had no one I wanted to tell. But so I completely sympathize with you on that. <laughs> so take me through your journey. You get the diagnosis. You've had MS for a few years. What does life look like at that point? Do they start you right away on treatments? So right in the beginning, so first and foremost, I thought after my MS diagnosis that that was the worst it could ever get. Life couldn't get any worse than that. And life was like, you know, hold my beer. Here you go. Um, because MS compared to IBD at this time was a cakewalk. It was, I had that first kind of initial flare and then I was really fine after that. And so, but again, at the time when you've been healthy your whole life, you have this new chronic illness. It's sort of like nothing can get worse than this. You know, you foresee the rest of your life and all the things that can go wrong. Um, especially when like for me, I was about to start my life and I just was sort of like, it's going to be over before it started. I thought I would never work. And I thought I would, you know, be wheelchair bound within a year, right? Like all the materials kind of back then, which was, it was 17 years ago, were really directed towards older people. And so I really had this perception that, <laughs> that everything was just going to turn to shit right away. Um, so when I got diagnosed with UC, it was a very different ballgame because I was pretty sick from the beginning. And I think I waited until, you know, the last point before it was like, I would have been hospitalized had I not gotten that diagnosis. Like I would have gone in and been like, I'm really sick. I don't know why. Um, because it was only a matter of like weeks after my diagnosis to when I got first hospitalized for dehydration and, you know, all the really fun stuff that happens um, when you are actively flaring. Because what was not explained to me at that flex sig was that I was actively flaring. So I just kept on keeping on living my life. I took a road trip across the country, right? I just was like, I, I feel like garbage, but this is maybe who I am now, right? Like, I didn't know. So they didn't do anything after that flex sig? They, they didn't send you home with? No. It was just done diagnosis go back to how you were? It was done diagnosis and they started me on Azacol, which, you know, is sort of first line of defense, right? Um, and I was like, well, this is the medication I take now and this is my life. Right? Again, it wasn't explained. You're in a flare. You might feel these things. You might see these things. It was just like, we got a good diagnosis for you and take this medication and you're going to be great. And I was not, not great. Um, it went downhill very quickly after that. I mean, the road trip, I think, didn't help. Let's be real here. But again, I, I didn't know not to do that at the time. And I think I might have even asked and they might have even said, like, you're you'll be fine. Go ahead. You know, so it was all so new and I had no one to ask. I was definitely not going to go out of my way to ask strangers for information on this. So I was like, I got it. I'm, I'm winging it. I'm fine. And I was not fine. It was really not fine. And that first hospitalization was the one that I had to tell everybody in, in my life. You know, I had to tell my parents that I had a new diagnosis. I had to tell my sibling. I had to tell all of these people that I didn't want to tell because I couldn't hide it anymore at that point from them, like from my immediate family. After that first hospitalization, did they do anything different? Take me through the next part of your journey where you go through 
I'm assuming different treatments. I know you've had multiple surgeries. So kind of take me through that process and hopefully to remission or to at least where you're feeling better and and managing both IBD and MS. Well, joke's on you because that doesn't happen for a couple years Uh, because in the beginning, so again, like I have, when I went into the GI I had started seeing blood, but for the most part, my biggest symptom was constipation. And he was sort of like, this is definitely not IBD because IBD people don't have constipation, which, you know, no one can see our huge eye rolls right now because obviously we know that is a symptom. And this guy didn't somehow. So um, in the beginning, he was just throwing fiber on it, just like eat the fiber, all the fiber, extra fiber, 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 um, which did not help anything. I have been there. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, you know, like in the beginning, I was just set up for like failure is what it felt like because he wasn't listening to me. It wasn't until that scope. So anyway, so they start me on Azacol and I'm thinking this will solve things because that's what medication is supposed to do. Like, again, I had MS and I, the, the parallels are similar now, but I was still only three years into MS, right? I didn't really understand like how chronic illness necessarily works at the time. Or when you take a medication, it doesn't mean that things will even get better sometimes. Sometimes it just means it's not going to get worse, but it doesn't mean it's going to get better. So I didn't understand all of these concepts at the time. So I'm thinking this medication is going to get me better. And let's say that was like March, April of 2009, roughly. So I keep on, I'm still working full time. I'm still having the same issues. I'm declining though. The issues are getting worse. I'm starting to get admitted to the hospital pretty regularly for urgency, frequency, pain, dehydration, you know, lots of blood, kind of all the things are culminating for months and months where I'm spending a lot of time in the hospital. I'm in there maybe every other week. I'm at the ER multiple times a month. Most of the time that turns into at least one week long stay and nobody's really telling me anything. It's just sort of like we're treating symptoms. Um, This can be IBD. It's kind of just like this, this can be it. And so I'm thinking, man, my life is going to suck. Like legitimately, it's like if this is life, this is bad. Um, But at that time, you know, I didn't even really have time to reflect on it because I'm just trying to keep up. I'm trying to go to work and stay there and not shit myself to and from and while I'm there. And, you know, I'm super, I basically go home from work and go to sleep immediately and wake up and do it again. Like I'm not, not even eating because eating causes problems. And also you have to have energy to cook and to eat. So I just go to work and I come home and I sleep and like, this is my life. And in my brain, I'm like, this is fine. This is fine. Um, because, I knew at this point that there were surgeries for ulcerative colitis, but they were not an option to me. I did not want them. I did not want to think about them. We were still keeping on, keeping on. So this continues to go on now for months. Um, I'm on high dose steroids now because nothing has changed. In fact, I'm continuing to get worse. Um, There is a moment where... um, the shit hits the fan in a way that um, is unusual for most people where I um, I'm at the hospital. I feel like mega, mega garbage, right? Like my, I'm very low energy. I'm having a hard time breathing and it's just like, they're treating me for the normal things that they're treating me for. And then eventually they're like, okay, it's time for you to leave. And I feel and look awful. I mean, like I know, I remember this, like I was bad. When I went home to my parents' house, I lived by myself then and I went home to their house and my mom had to literally cut my food for me and she had to like walk me to the bathroom. Like I was very weak and that's how they sent me home. So we're thinking, again, this is normal, right? Because I have doctors watching me do all of this. And I had a follow-up appointment with a, with a rheumatologist that I saw in the hospital. You know, at this point, again, we're still like grasping at straws of like what's really going wrong. And so I go see this guy, we go to this appointment and he starts doing, you know, a quick checkup because he sees me, I'm like breathing really deeply and I can't really talk. And it's just like that kind of presence, I guess. And so he checks my heart rate and he's like, Hey, uh, your heart rate is of a grown man, um, running. You are going to go into heart failure if you don't go to the ER right now. And so that's a problem. Uh, so I go to the ER, I check myself in, 
they start running, a, you know, just a myriad of tests. I have x-rays and CTs and all these things are happening. And what they find is that I have an enlarged pericardium. So I have too much fluid around my heart, which is like a real fun thing, right? Just like, where does that come from? Like, what causes that? Didn't know I was looking for that, right? It's just like another, like, what now kind of thing. Do they know what caused it? So at that time, no. And what they tell me, though, is like, this is really... Rewinding for a hot second, this is just like irk you. They saw this in my scans when I was in the hospital and still sent me home. Like they knew it was there. And what I know now is that this tends to get worse. It doesn't get better. So they saw this. They sent me home. It got much worse. And I went back to the ER for this. And what ended up happening was um, you need emergency surgery to fix this. Otherwise, you will go into heart failure. Uh, So the next day, they do an open. Normally, this is something solved by like they can usually jam a needle in your chest and drain the fluid. Um, it had gone on too far. So I had to have a surgery. My first IBD surgery was an open incision to put a permanent hole in the pericardium. So the fluid, if this ever happens again, will drain into my lungs, which felt, you know, very reassuring at the time. Um, so I'm like, what happened? Where'd this come from? And they're all, we don't know. It's again, it's like, you're a medical mystery again. And I start doing research. I start looking for this. We don't have a conclusive, this is 100% what caused it. But based on when you read the PI, which is the insert that comes with your medications, all that tiny words, if you ever go read that, they'll tell you clinically what happened in trials to people. And 1% of people had this happen with taking Azacol. So for me, there's no other reason this would have happened, could have happened. I was on Azacol. I'm assuming this is what happened. So after that, we take me off of Azacol. Um, and I, I am on 6MP and Imuran for like a month and a half, a very short period of time because they're not doing anything. I'm on 60 milligrams of steroids a day. I am ballooned the way that we do. But like I had been on 60 milligrams of steroids for like three months at that point. So I was very round at that point. Um, And this is when we start going into, there are other medications I could take, but at that time, there was a real concern that taking a biologic for IBD could cause a relapse with MS. So Remicade was off the table and a couple other things were kind of off the table at that point. And I basically ran out of medication options like immediately because after as a call they didn't want to give me any of the other five asas uh imuran and 6mp were not like there was no change in the month and i'm assuming there should have been something in that it feels like a short period of time but they basically were like we don't see anything we're taking you off of it so it was you know the whole grand scheme of things it was probably like eight months but the reality was like after the as a call was a no-go anymore it was a matter of weeks before they were like, you have to start talking about surgery. And was there any treatment as far as your MS goes? Was there anything that you can do treatment wise for that? Or is with IBD, were they mostly just trying to not make the MS flare? And so walking that fine line of balancing the two chronic illnesses? Um, so I, I think at that time, I've been on a lot of medications for MS and that is strictly because I am (laughs) non-compliant. I'm a bad patient. Um, because at the time during the beginning, again, 17 years ago in MS, there were only injectables for treatments, much kind of like in the beginning of IBD, there was really just like Remicade. Um, and I was just not down for that. I was really bad about it because the, also I, I think I think that the, aren't, aren't the injectables like for IBD, I, I should know this. It's like weeks apart, right? It's like, you know, usually you take them every couple of weeks. So with MS, the options were every other day, every day, or once a week. And I just was not into it. I kept trying and then I would justify skipping one. Cause I'm like, well, I have to do another one tomorrow. And then I would do that for like a week where I'd be like, well, it's only been a week. I have to do it every day. Like I just kept not doing it. So I was probably non-compliant at that point. That was three years in. I didn't take MS meds for like 10 years in the beginning because I just, I also had a hard time trusting that they do anything because it's not like other medications where you can take something and then go, I see a difference. With MS medications, what they're designed to do is elongate the time in between relapses. So we don't know when we're going to relapse. So how do we know if it elongated the time or not? And at the time I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this because how do we know? So 
right or wrong. That's what I did. So lead me up to your surgery. So Asacol is off the table. All the other medications are basically off the table. You've got nothing left for IBD. Is that when the surgery happens? Yeah. So at that point, I started talking about surgery, like within my family, just going, well, I am not getting any better. I'm getting significantly worse. My quality of life is garbage at this point. Um, I need to start considering this. So my mom and I drove to Cleveland because where we live in Michigan, the two best options are Mayo and Cleveland and Cleveland is closer. Um, here in Michigan, there are some people who do this, but at this point I wanted someone who like did this a lot. So we go to Cleveland, we have a consult and, uh, the big takeaway is basically that the surgeon says to me, um, you can leave here today and call us and schedule your surgery, or you can wait and you'll probably get airlifted in because your colon will explode. Which, you know, um, is motivating. <laughs> uh, it was not, you know, it wasn't a surgery is an option. For, it wasn't, you know, choose what you want. It was like, you're going to do this. And you can control it by planning the date and you can control how you get here. Or you will take a big expensive helicopter ride probably is basically what he said. Um, and so we drove home and I'm pretty sure it was like silent the whole way home because I did not want to talk about it. I was not ready to admit that this is where I was at. But I'm pretty sure the next day I called and scheduled surgery um, because... You know, when, you, when you're told that, when you're facing it that way, I knew I was out of medications. I knew that I wasn't getting any better. It was like, well, again, I can fight this and get worse and worse and worse. And what I didn't know at that time, quite frankly, is how many people die in that phase of like putting it off, ignoring it, not dealing with it. And that really easily, I could have gotten very, very, very sick because I really didn't want to do it. But I called, I scheduled it, got it on the calendar, and then like had something to look forward to, I guess. You know, like it, not really, but at least it was like, this is the first step to getting better, is this first really awful, shitty, terrible step. But this is the first one to a life where I don't feel like this anymore. First milestone. Yeah. So after that surgery, did that lead you into remission? Um, yes. So my whole IBD story, I guess, from diagnosis to surgery is less than a year. So less than a year after diagnosis, I had my first surgery. Um, so I had that first flare, which really lasted like the whole year and would have continued on had I not had surgery. So post-surgery, um, other than usual surgical pains and aches, um, I felt better. I was traveling again. I was visiting people. You know, I had, I was doing much, much better. Um, in this process though, I did get fired from my job because I was not doing it because I wasn't there. Um, you know, right or wrong, that's what happened. So it, it was a stressful time because I didn't have a lot of money coming in and I knew I had more surgeries coming up. I knew we planned for a three-step it ended up being a four step because I had a large complication in there, but I knew nobody was going to give me a job going, I have three surgeries planned. Each one has a six to eight week recovery. I'll be here when I'm here, you know? So I uh, went to grad school instead. So take me through that last part. You went to grad school. Did you end up going through the four step surgery? And then after that, once all the steps were completed, did that really allow IBD to calm down? How do you manage it today? Yeah. So um, grad school was like, honestly, aside from the fact that it costs uh, an insane amount of money, it was the perfect thing to do because it gave me something to focus on, something to work towards, um, something I was excited about, even though, you know, it was costing a lot of money, but it wasn't like, because what I knew what was going to happen is I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. All my friends were working. I was going to sit at home by myself for like seven months and just get really depressed is basically what I thought would happen. So I didn't want to do that. Um, I didn't avoid that entirely. You know, like I said, I had some complications in there, which were really big and really frustrating and set things back. They changed the whole timeline. Like I should have been done in nine months. It took 15 months because, you know, of the issues that I encountered. And um, by the time I got done, though, and I had my takedown, everything was finished. I let's see. I finished grad school, I think the same year. And it was really like, 
a whole different life. I mean, the first year of a J pouch is a little bit challenging because it's learning to settle. It's learning to be a large intestine. It's not perfect. You know, the propensity for accidents is still there while it learns, stretches and does what it's going to do. Uh, but overall, like I felt better, you know, the urgency was gone. The frequency was gone. Like it just was like a different life, like almost, I mean, again, it took 15 months to get there. But after that, it was like a different life. And has it stayed that way to this day? Do you have to watch what you eat or just? So what I want to say, yes, yes, I'm killing it right now. First of all, like my J pouch, I think is like one of the strongest ones of anybody that I know. I eat whatever I want. I eat spicy food. I eat popcorn. I eat nuts. Like I eat all the things we're not supposed to be eating because I can. But part of the reason why I think that happened, honestly, is because of that fourth surgery. I had a lot of internal healing time. Like my J pouch itself healed for over a year inside before it was, you know, turned on basically. And I don't, most people don't get that. Like based on nobody wants an ostomy, everybody wants to be done quickly. So they, they rush them along, you know, in the healthiest way they can. But really what's happening is you set this thing up, you sew it, you change it, you change your entire insides. And then like three months later, you're using that thing for something it's not meant to do. And so a lot of people have complications or they have sensitivities and, and I don't have any research to back this up, but I'm a firm believer just from the people I know that because I had so much time, it was completely healed. I think that is indicative of why it's doing so well even today. I mean, I've had pouchitis twice, but other than that, I have had, and I, okay, I lied. And I had one small intestine blockage in 2019, which was seven years after my J pouch. So, I mean, I got my final surgery was in 2012. Like that's when it was done. So it's been however many years that is. And basically I've had essentially no major issues since then. Yay, J pouch. Way to right? go. <laughs> right. <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about is you mentioned you went to grad school because you, you needed to focus, you needed something to do. But at some point, you channeled all of your energy into taking your chronic illnesses and really making that a part of your life and doing good with it. You mentioned on your, your websites that you're an expert at turning lemons into lemonade. So take me through the journey of when you started Girls With Guts and what that is and how that started. Sure. So when I was in grad school, they had a program. I I went to grad school for library and information science. So when I was a graduate student assistant, I worked in the main library there. And in the main library was this program called Blackstone Launchpad, which was there to help students launch businesses. That's their whole purpose. And so I would walk past it like every day. And then um, at the time, I knew other online advocates. And we had done this weekend where we all got together and we went to Chicago and we were, you know, stomping around the streets wearing shirts that said, ask us about our stuff. And we were really trying, we were in like a delightfully annoying way. And we were really trying to get in front of people. And a lot of our people who were reading our blogs at the time were sort of like, that's cool. I want to I want to do that. And on the way there, I had been tossing around this idea of a conference like for people with IBD. And after that weekend, I had changed my mind and I was like, I don't want to do a conference. I want to do a retreat. I want to do like summer camp for grownups. And so the idea from Girls With Guts came from that weekend of just being around other people who got it. We shared a hotel room. It wasn't weird with anybody had like a bathroom thing. You know, it was just like we all got it. It was easy, even though we were strangers. And that was the idea from Girls With Guts. You know, I walked into Blackstone Launchpad one day. I was like, I got this idea for a nonprofit. And they were like, okay, cool. Do these five things. And when you do those things, come back. We'll give you another list of these five things. And they held my hand through establishing it as a business. Um, and they gave, me, gave us our first grant. I had to do like a pitch competition. So Blackstone is the reason why Girls With Guts exists like to this day, because without it, I would have had no idea how to, and the law school there helped me do the paperwork. So just all like that help that I got from being in grad school to launch this business. Um, if I, if the, the timelines of those things hadn't lined up, there would be no Girls With Guts. That's incredible. So you actually, you ran Girls With Guts for a few years is my understanding. How does it operate now? Is it self-sustaining? Are you still involved with it on the day-to-day -day or periodically? Yeah. So Girls With Guts this year is 10 years old, which is wild. Um, and I ran it sort of as, you know, 
executive director, founding person, like whatever term you want to use, it changed over the years for the first five years. And at our five-year celebration, um, I decided to step away from the organization to kind of like live my life and focus on some other things. And I gave it up to the board and I said, do you, what do you want to do? Here are options. We can keep doing things the same. We can change the model. We can close. Like, what do you want to do? And they wanted to keep doing it. So um, Girls With Guts is fully self-sustaining, running, doing its own thing right now. And what are the activities that it does? If people are listening to and wanting to learn more about Girls With Guts, what is it? What can patients do? How do they get involved? Sure. There are three main programs. I think, unless they've changed something drastically. Um, the bread and butter, the big one, the what they're known for is the the retreats. So there's an annual retreat. Um, well, there's two annual retreats now. There's one for new people and one for kind of existing participants. Um, it's usually Friday to Monday or maybe Friday to Sunday. It just kind of depends on the location and the time of year. Um, and they bring in women, adult women who live with IBD and ostomies and put them together usually in some kind of like camp environment, just like brings out all the feels, right? And then brings in speakers and session leaders to talk about either life with IBD to give, you know, pelvic floor examples from or nutrition or a therapist. Um, We've had GIs over the year that come in and give talks about research and, you know, sort of the all-encompassing, right? We we wanted it to be educational, but also like to fill your soul and fill your bucket. So when you go home, like you have support when you go home. What a great program. It's I'm not going to lie. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so after you stepped away, you continued to do a number of different things. And I'm not sure when this happened, but you have also written a book. So talk about writing the book, what it is and and what part of the journey that was. So. I think what you're talking about is an ebook actually on my website. Um, so I, when I started with MS, I started a blog and it was just cause like, I didn't know what else to do with everything I was feeling. And that was also like before social media. So it was like, if you want to talk to people, you have a blog. So I started blogging with MS. And then when IBD came along, I did the same thing, mostly because I couldn't tell anybody and I needed to process some stuff. And even at that time, and I, I say this every time and nobody believes me that at this point in the internet, there were two websites for J Pouch people. That's it. There were no f- two forums, but there weren't groups or websites or whatever. It was just like people talking about it behind a locked forum. And um, there wasn't a lot of resources for people with J Pouches to connect or to learn from each other. So I had been blogging about all of this stuff for many years at this point. And through that process, I had started partnering with like health media sites to write articles for them or do talks for them or do panel presentations for them. And over the time, those gigs, I guess we'll call them, um, got more. There were more of them. And then eventually they started getting paid. And, you know, so like these, they start happening. And it's really cool because in the beginning, nobody's listening to patients. And now there's a whole different world out there where like patients are getting paid to do stuff pretty regularly, which is really awesome. So long story longer, I partnered with Healthline to write this ebook about um, like managing MS at the time. And so that was one of the coolest ones that I did because, um, you know, I had been wanting to write a book and even still like, you know, I have some feelings. I'm like, is an ebook really a book? Right. But anyway, I did it. So that was a really cool one um, because it just felt like something I had been wanting to do. And I have been telling the world now for since 2009 that I was going to write a book about my life with IBD. And the reality is like, I'm a blogger, so writing a whole ass book is hard. <laughs> and I have sat down to write it many times over the last 10 plus years and it just hasn't panned out. Like I just can't make it longer. And so I finally decided earlier this year, um, over this summer, a friend of mine helped me. I podcast the whole story. So instead of writing that book, there's now a podcast of everything, all the details that you may or may not want to know about me, they are out there. And so that was really good. That felt like I finally got the catharsis. I finally got it out there. It wasn't how I thought it was going to be. Like, I thought I would write a book. I still, like, kind of wish that I could write a book. But, like, it's just not going to happen. Like, I know me. It's just not going to happen. Like, (laughs) just publish all your blog articles. Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) So what is that podcast that you shared your story in? That podcast is called What Won't She Say? 
And it's a, a podcast about like women sharing their lives. And my friend Sonia, who hosts that podcast, uh, gave me like a summer series to share my story. So I think there's 11 episodes. Awesome. I will find that and I will put it in the, the show notes for people to go go and find. Thanks. Speaking of podcasts, at one point you also partnered with Psych Central to create a podcast called Not Crazy to talk openly about mental health and mental illness. Talk to me a little bit about your own mental health throughout this journey and a little bit more about that podcast. So that podcast was with my co-host, whose name is Gabe Howard, who is a really powerful force in the bipolar sphere. He had he was in the market for a new co-host and he and I had been friends for a long time. He kind of asked me to step in kind of as like an interim and then it stuck for a while. Like I didn't anticipate being on a mental health podcast because I felt like I wasn't expert enough. Right. I just was like, oh, I'm somebody who lives with really severe depression and I have really paralyzing anxiety, but I don't know enough about this topic. And he was sort of like, hey, dumb, dumb. Yes, you you live it. You can talk about it. So that's kind of where it started. We wanted a place where people talk about mental illness, basically, and say the things that nobody says is what we were going for. Um, saying all the things that everybody feels, but it's not OK to say or it's not PC to say and just like what it's like to live with mental illness for real. Um, and we did that up until the pandemic started uh, when the, you know, everything shifted and changed and Psych Central changed and then it got acquired. So like the it kind of tanked out. But um, Gabe is still doing those types of podcasts through Psych Central and through Healthline. It just didn't make sense for me to continue on because what I also felt like was I was getting stretched thin. I was in the MS space. I was in the IBD space. And now I was trying to establish myself in the mental illness space. And it just was like, I need to, this is my lane over here. That's not my lane. Yes, I live with those things. I've had very severe depression um, since probably the onstart of MS, honestly, right? It was, you know, a big life shift when I was younger. Um, with IBD, things got worse because my mortality got brought into the, the picture. You know, when you're in your 20s, facing your mortality, if you don't do these things, or, you know, at that point, I had done Camp Oasis as a counselor for about five years, and one of my co-counselors died from complications from IBD. So it was like, people I know who are my age, who have this thing that I have, the complication with my surgery was a massive setback. There were a lot of things that really just we're not going my way and not in the like selfish, like things aren't going my way, but it just in my life is off track. I don't ever see it getting back on track. And in those moments, I got very, very depressed. I had a lot of suicidal ideation at the time. I really did just didn't see a scenario in which my life didn't suck. You know, I just, I couldn't see I mean, the way that when we do when we get depressed, where you can't see a way out, you can't see anything changing, you're very focused on yourself and no other outside forces can break in to tell you that you're spiraling by yourself in a circle. Um, so I got through that with a lot of support, um, a lot of therapy, and things did get better. How did you first get that support? Did you have to be the one to make that decision that I need help and have to reach out? Or did you have people in your community, your family, your friends that were trying to pull you out of that depression and say, you need to get help. Let's speak to someone. Talk to me about how that came about. It was twofold. So I had people in my life who had known me a very long time who were comfortable kind of saying like, hey, you okay? You don't really seem like you're okay, um, which is helpful. But of course, your first instinct is to be like, I'm fine. I am fine. Um, but the fact that they had kind of laid that groundwork enabled me to when I knew that I was not fine anymore, I basically all, all I had to say was, I'm not fine. Like, I'm not okay anymore. And um, I had friends calling around trying to find an in in inpatient bed for me at that time. They were doing kind of that legwork for me. Um, there were no beds available at that time, so I did not get admitted, right or wrong. That's what happened. Um, but the other piece of it was, at the time, my sister had just had a baby. This was sort of our first family baby. And I was very excited about this baby. And I just have one sister. And so... I couldn't stop thinking about if I didn't exist anymore, 
all that this child would know growing up was that at one point I had existed, then I got really sick, and then I didn't exist anymore. And I just felt like there was, I can't explain it, but there was just something where I was like, I don't like that. <laughs> like, I want, I wanted to have a better legacy. I wanted to leave behind something that was more meaningful than without knowing me that I just checked out. That's what I thought this kid would grow up and think, basically. It was like, oh, you just checked out. And not, I'm not saying that people, I'm not saying that, but like, that's what I, in the moment, that's what I thought that they would grow up and think about me. And I wanted to be a cheerleader for them. I wanted to be somebody who gave them support and taught them things and showed them that hardships can turn into, you know, like I wanted like the silver bow on like being an aunt. And I realized that I couldn't get there if I was going to stay in this shitty space for so long, if I wasn't willing to put in work, I wasn't going to make it. And so, you know, this child who was probably not even a year old at the time was a really huge motivator for me. I also like, I don't have kids. I didn't plan on having kids. Um, but this was going to be the closest to my kid as I was going to get. And I did not want to not see this child grow up and have a life and learn things and to teach them things. All the reasons why people want to have kids, I wanted to do that as an aunt. And anyway, I'm rambling now. But the whole point is that I I had to find a thing that I wanted to live for. And that thing turned out to be my sister's kid. What advice would you give to someone who's struggling with depression and anxiety, especially stemming from chronic illness? Mm -hmm. Oh, man, so much advice. Um, I think the first and foremost part is being honest with yourself about where you're at. And if it is as bad as it was for me, step one is acknowledging that it is that bad. You know, it's I had made a plan. I had a whole plan on what I was going to do. I knew I was starting to make plans on what I was how I was going to leave things. And I was still like, it's not that bad. Right. Like, you know, I was not honest with myself. And I think the other part of it is doing the really, really hard thing which is just telling someone. And it doesn't have to be um, the person receiving this information needs to be a person that's not going to lose their shit when they receive it, right? It has to be a what I got from my doctors because I did talk to my doctors about it after I had talked to friends about it when I was like, this is a problem. I need to start getting help for this. Um, I never had anybody panic and go, oh my God, we have to take away everything. You can't do this anymore. You have to... Everybody was like, okay, um, what do you have in your house? What are you going to do about that? You know, like we created a safety plan, all of these things, um, because you have to tell someone because that is literally the first step to starting to get better. Whether that person is a therapist or a doctor or a friend or a parent, that is step one to starting to get help. Um, the longer that you isolate and surround yourself, the worse it gets because your your depressed brain tells you how worthless you are and it will continue to do that. You have to have an interrupter. You have to have somebody who can step in and tell you your next step is to meet with somebody, go to the ER, you know, like whatever that is. But it starts with you finding someone that you can just say, I'm not okay to. And that's all you have to say. It doesn't have to be anything like, you don't have to give them the details. You can just say like, I am not okay and I need help. That is great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So on to lighter topics. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout your life, you've you've navigated two chronic illnesses. You've poured your heart into patient advocacy. You founded a nonprofit. You wrote a book, numerous articles, and you've mastered the art of getting shit done. <laughs> so tell me about how your journey led you to your business now, Queen of GSD, and how you manage that with chronic illness. My last corporate job, I was working for WeGo Health, which I think a lot of people know as an entity now, um, as a, a company that helps patient leaders connect them with jobs and elevate them. And my role at that company was to find patients and hook them up with cool stuff. It was a really awesome role. It felt like it, en it encompassed my professional skills and my advocacy skills. And it really felt like this is like the place to be. Um, I was really happy there. And then what kind of happened was by no fault of anybody's, I lost like two people on my team. They were out for various reasons and it started getting very hectic and very hard. I was doing the work of three people at one time. Um, and at one point I had an MS relapse for like the first time in seven years. And it was just sort of me going, this is a lot. 
that, that I didn't really sign up for, you know, and, uh, I just decided at the time that the job itself, even though I loved the connections, I loved working with other patients was too much stress for me because a lot of what I was doing, there were like last minute deadlines. It was like, we need this by tomorrow. We need this by two days from now. And I am not a person that like, I will do it. I will panic the whole time and I will feel like garbage the whole time, but I will get it done. And I kept doing that, kept doing it, kept doing it. And it just was like, this is not a good fit for me. And so I knew eventually that I wanted to transition into my own company. And I had started making plans to do that. Uh, but the shift happened just like much faster than I thought it would. It was just sort of like, I'm going to do this over six months. And then all of a sudden it was like, you're on your own now and you have to get a job <laughs> because I, I panic quit. And it's been long enough now where I feel like I can just tell the world. Like I was like, I quit effective now immediately. Like I'm done. Um, which was an awesome feeling, but also like horrifying because I had nothing lined up. I didn't have another job. I didn't have any clients. I didn't even have a business structure. Like I just was like, that's it. I am screwed now. And very candidly, I I'm married. And that is the only reason why I was able to do that is because I have a husband who can pay bills and get me health insurance. Otherwise that would have never happened. So I found myself basically flailing where I was like, I have no job. I did not practice long enough to get a business going. I had freelanced over the years, like doing sort of my skills and things, but I never thought I would work for myself full time. I come from a family of entrepreneurs, but for me, it was always health insurance, you know, like without paid leave, you know, all of the protections you get with a corporate job felt very scary to do on your own. And I just didn't think I wanted the stress of all of that. Um, but it was like, I had started kind of interviewing some places, but nothing was really going the way that I wanted it to. So I started looking for clients and I didn't even know what clients meant then. I didn't know who I was looking for. I didn't know who my ideal client was. I didn't even really know the type of work I really wanted to do, which made the whole process very hard. Um, so it was like six months of me just like flailing around going like, who will pay me to do anything? Basically just like 50 bucks, I'll do it, whatever it is. I don't care. Like it just was it was very chaotic for like six months. And then I had hit this point in those six months where I was like, I might need to start looking for a job for real because I just like had no direction. I did not know what I was doing. I didn't even know if I wanted to be like in health anymore or if I wanted to be like in a totally different area. It was not a good time. So I found this local group. It's called the She Hive. And there are masterminds there for like business. And I started going there and they just saved me. They were sort of like, oh, you're so delightfully flaily and chaosy. We will help you. And so without that group of women, I would not have a business today because uh, they really were sort of like, here is what you need to do. <laughs> Figure out who your clients are. That's a good step. So I got a lot of support there, but it took working through various jobs like prior to WeGo Health where it was like, this is fine until it's not fine, right? Or like, as you know, right? Oh, today, for some reason, just today, I feel like garbage today. And how hard that is to call into your job and just be like, for no reason at all, I feel like garbage today. And I never felt like I could. And I never felt like I could do it without judgment, even though everybody knew my whole life story because I plastered it all over the internet. Um, I didn't have any like anonymity prote protections. Like if I applied somewhere, they saw my whole life all over the internet. So it just got to the point where I was like, I think I can do this better on my own. And I know I can support myself, my health better if I don't have a boss to check in with or deadlines I didn't agree to, you know, um, there's a lot of reasons why running your own business is absolutely delightful when you have a chronic illness, but it's not without the awful hard stuff. Like I kept thinking about like the, the model of WeGo Health was really like, you know, we have a sales team and they sell the things and then like we do the delivery piece. And that's sort of every company is there's a sales team and then there's the people who do the work. And I had never had to do sales before. And then because everybody thinks you start your business and you're just like, you love to do the thing you love to do. And that's what you do. And you're killing it. But nobody talks about you have to be an accountant and a salesperson and an admin person and all you have to pay your own taxes and all of the hard pieces. No one talks about that. <laughs> and then a lot of people get into being their own having their own business. And they're like, well, shit, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be, which is totally what happened to me. And I think happens to everybody. It's like a rite of passage when you decide you're going to own a business. So 
I rambled again, but basically it got to the point where I was like, I think I can do this better. I now know who my clients are. I now know, you know, I had people because of this mastermind telling me again, like, you're good at this. You know what you're doing. You can do this. Um, and then now I think it's been, what, four, almost five years later now. That's wonderful. Now, who is your client? Who did you decide <laughs> is your client? So I have like this bleeding heart where every time I decide I'm going to do a business venture of some sort, I'm like, I'm going to work with patients and nonprofits. That's what I'm going to do. And every business idea I've ever had, that is the first set of people I want to help. And I will learn and you learn immediately. Those are two places that there's not a lot of money. <laughs> so um, that was the first client set where I was like, this is what I want. And again, like, very quickly did I realize you need another set of clients. And so most of my clients now are currently um, independent service providers. So like coaches, nutritionists, yoga instructors, um, mostly one person companies who need websites, who need online course memberships, who need productivity systems. Um, the last year it's been branching, it's been growing. So I have some more mid-sized companies now, um, which has been really cool because it feels really good to like feel like you can take on bigger clients. Also, it's better because they have more money. <laughs> so um, there it's it's been a growth process. You know, the way that they talk about growth and scaling a business, once you're doing it, you can see it like there's year one is hard. Year two felt way harder because year two for me was the pandemic. So I was like, I'm going to lose a business. No one is going to need websites anymore. Everybody has no money. And as it turns out, I was totally wrong. I was so busy in 2020 because everybody had a business idea. We all were at home and we all needed these things. So um, what I have learned is that my instincts for what's going to happen in my business are bad. My instincts to run my business are very good. I always think I'm going to not have clients anymore because the pandemic or because the recession or because of this and this and this, it's never happened yet. I can run the business flawlessly day to day, but I'm always convinced it's going to fail because of outside forces, basically. Well, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who is a chronic illness patient slash entrepreneur who's thinking, I have an idea. I want to start a business. What advice would you give to someone like that? I think before you even start the business and before you pick what skill you're going to use, before you pick what service you're going to provide, you need to really think about what your ideal day schedule month looks like. Um, and the reason why I say that is, be and that was something I learned. I had signed up for this business course when I was still at my last job, because this was the goal of like slowly transitioning into a business. And one of the things that they really harped on was sort of like your ideal world. Like, why are you doing this? And we spent a long time on that. And I remember being so annoyed of like, can we just get into like, how much do I charge an hour? Like, how do I do this? And uh, I'm so glad they did because what it really made you see was your capacity. Do you want to work nine to five every day? Do you want to work Monday through Thursday? Do you want weekends off? Do you not want to take meetings on Mondays? Like what in your life? Build the work around your life. This is the opportunity to build work around your life versus the other way. So spend a lot of time thinking about what does your life look like? And particularly if you have a chronic illness, do you need naps? Do you need Fridays off? Do you need Mondays off? Like, what does it look like? Because there are going to be things along the way the whole time that try to get you to deviate off of that path. It's going to be like somebody who needs a Monday morning meeting or somebody who doesn't can't work during the week or who works during the week. So they need to meet with you on a Saturday. Like, do you say yes to those things? Do you give up your peace for those things? So even before you're like talking about packages and pricing and doing all that stuff, you really need to think about what it looks like to figure out if it's feasible. Because the other part of that is like, let's say you're like, okay, I really only want to work three days a week. Okay, you can do that. It's your business. Can you get by on that? Can you pay your bills on that? Does it make sense to do that? Um, before you invest all this time and effort into building something, is it even sustainable for your life right now? So you have to get real about your numbers. Like, what are your bills? What is, what is, what is non-negotiable in your life? Do you need 47 streaming services? And if the answer is yes, because it might be yes, okay, well then how do you plan to pay for those? Um, honestly, when it comes to business 
it almost has nothing to do with the service you offer. Every, the world has 57 million web designers. It's not that I can build websites. People hire you. They hire you as a person. It literally, again, what you offer them almost doesn't even matter. It's who you are. And so I think it you have to be really honest and transparent. I never, I mean, again, I can't hide my whole health history. It's all over the internet. I can't hide from anything. Maybe you can, but like whoever you are, but I can't. So I'm always really upfront. Like I don't lead with like, hey, I'm Jackie. I have these chronic illnesses. I might be unreliable. But in the event that like something happens, I tell them what's going on. This is what's going on. This is when I expect to return. This is how I expect to make up for it. Like, here are my intentions. Um, and I've never had any person be an asshole about it. Nobody's ever been rude or misunderstanding. They're always like, oh, my God, I hope you feel better. This is not a priority. Don't worry about this. And you can pretend like you have a business owner, like you're a fully healthy person. But the reality is you're not. And it's not. So it's going to take more effort and energy to build the business. You have to put so much more of yourself into this kind of business. It's not just like free flying with like, I own my own business, so I pick my own hours. You still have to be willing to pour yourself into it. And there is rewards along the way. Like today, I was not very busy. And so I kind of like dinked around all morning. And then I like took a nap and I was just like, mm, whatever. Um, but that's because I can today. This summer, I was working to like nine o'clock every night. I was crazy, crazy busy and it was awful. I hated it. But now what I've done is I've implemented stopgap. So I have hired help now, right? So I have people I can outsource to, but it takes a while to get there. You have to be willing or capable of putting in the effort when you can. And I think, again, man, I'm rambly today. I apologize. But I feel so passionate about these topics because no one told me this stuff. I mean, I'm sure it was out there. I'm sure if I looked hard enough, I could have found it. But like, you always think not me. Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to have enough energy or just to get this started. I can, I'm willing to invest my time and effort here, but you know, not forever. And the reality is it's a long time. It's like a couple years that you got to be will really willing to like bear down and do the hard work before you can get to the reward points of, I don't feel guilty if I have an open morning and maybe I'll watch TV in the morning, you know, like you have to build it slowly. But that's why I said like the first step is looking at your whole life and assessing what you want it to be. Because it's so easy to say, I started a business and the goal was to work four days a week, a week for five hours a day. And now you're working six days a week for 10 hours a day. Like you have to be willing to figure, is it worth it? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Basically. You got to climb the mountain to get to yeah. the top. Yeah. And be really honest with yourself and what you're capable of doing. That's great advice. So if people want to learn more about you, learn more about Girls With Guts, your book, or your business and what you offer, where can they find and follow you online? Oh, man, I'm everywhere. <laughs> so you can find all my advocacy online, the book at JackieZimmerman.co. Um, if you need a website or an online membership or you want a CRM for your small business, you can find me at queenofgsd.com. And Girls With Guts is at girlswithguts.org. And they have all the info about all the programs that I didn't even talk about and the retreat. I will put all of those links in the show notes so they're easy to find. So finally, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wanted to share with the audience today? I don't know. I mean, you got me really thinking about like business and chronic illness because I'll be very candid that a lot of times people ask me about that and I'm like, mm, it's no big deal. Like it just is what it is. Like you just do it. And I think part of that is because now my whole community is small, independent business owners who are women. And like, this is just what we do, right? So it's like, do you want to get lunch on Tuesday for two hours? Sure. Let's do it. Like I think about it as like a no big deal thing, but the reality is there are lots of times that I get I get to choose my own adventure in the day because this is what I do, because of the work that I put in in the beginning and because of how hard I've I've worked to get to this point. So it's not really like a final note, but it's sort of like if anybody wants to just like riff about chronic illness and business, like I'm into it <laughs> because there's so many nuances and small things that now that I'm word vomiting again, like things that I don't think of as unique or different. But if I think about it really hard, it is like most healthy bodied people would not do things the way that I do them. Thank you so much for sharing that. And 
Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today and for all of the work that you do in the chronic illness community. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you so much. I mean, I love a podcast interview. Um, Who loves nothing more than talking about themselves for an hour? Let's be real here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The star of the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the Buy Me a Coffee link to send a little love. Or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.